Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, and this, what you're about to hear, is an interview I recorded with British Labour historian Anthony Broxton, in which we talk about rugby league in England in relationship to the wider uh, political and economic forces that were helping to shape the country, and in particular the north of the country, and then subsequently also the northern sport, rugby league. So I mentioned in our uh, in one of the parts of our English chapter that... I didn't really want to put too much of this stuff in the episode because it just would have required too much work. And I came to that realization when I first saw uh, Anthony's website. So it's tidesofhistory.wordpress.com, which uh, you'll hear me mention Tides of History in the course of our interview. I'll give it another plug here at the top because it was a really valuable resource for me in researching uh, Super League from the English point of view. Um But it also made me aware that I was just not going to be able to do this aspect of the history justice because it just would have required um, a lot more research that I didn't really have the time for. So the next best thing was to actually get Anthony involved. And I'm I'm really appreciative of him for giving me his time and um, sharing what I thought was some fascinating insights into the relationship between rugby league and, you know, politics and, and English society as a whole. So, um, as I said, please check out Tides of History, even if you just uh, are interested in rugby league and you don't want to hear about politics and economics and, and that side of things, there's such uh, great rugby league content on there. So he's written a lot about rugby league and there's some um, cool links to videos and all so- sorts of things. So Tides of History, please check it out. And I hope you enjoy this interview. It's actually like... After I got off the, the phone with Anthony, I, I just felt this real sense of pride that we could do something like this in this show. I mean, it this is an episode unlike any other, and I, I'll give ourselves a wrap and say I don't think there are too many other rugby league shows that would have an interview like this. So, um, I, as I said, I left this interview feeling very proud of what Andy and I have managed to achieve with this show, uh, and also just so appreciative of uh, everything that Anthony brought to this. And this, in many ways, is the conclusion of what I'm calling the M62 trilogy. So we had our interview with Mike Mehal Wood, our interview with Tony Collins, uh, and now Anthony to to give a Wigginer's point of view on the whole thing. So I really hope you enjoy it uh, and would love to hear what you think. So um, please let us know on Facebook, Twitter, we're on Instagram. Uh, send us an email to the rugby league digest at gmail.com. But yeah, without any uh, further wind up, let's just get straight into it. So here is my interview with Anthony Broxton. 
Hey everyone, Michael Adams here with a very special interview. British Labor historian and rugby league man. He's going to help me get to the bottom of you know the heart of of the Northern Soul and a lot of the the rugby league culture in England that I can't really grapple with. So Anthony Broxton, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm actually going to disagree with you already because having listened to your last two chapters, I think you pretty much nailed the English game. But um, hopefully I can add something as well on top of that. But I, yeah, last two podcasts, the ones with Mike as well, brilliant analysis of the of the UK game. And yeah, I, I would say that you, you pretty much nailed it there. Oh, very kind of you. It's, it's <laughs> nice to hear that. Uh, but so, so yeah, so I, I've got you on uh, basically uh, your website, Tides of History, which looks at British Labour history and there's a lot of rugby league content in it as well. I'd recommend that to anyone interested in either of those two things. Um, so I, I really wanted to, to get you on to, to just talk about the, the politics of it all and, and how that's affected rugby league in England over the last 40 years or so. But but before we do that, I, I want to set up your rugby league credentials. So, so what's your rugby league story? <laughs> uh, my rugby league story? My, my rugby league story is probably classic British rugby league story. I'm fourth generation league. So my dad took me to Wigan as a as a five year old. His dad had took him. His dad had took him. And probably his dad had took him. Um, which I think is probably classic of like, you know, working class life in the north of England. If you're in a rugby league town, you just get taken at a very young age. So kind of before I even knew what sport was, um, I was at Central Park just before it became a Tesco, as you, as you discussed previously. <laughs> and actually one of my earliest memories of, of Rugby League was um, 1997 World Club Challenge, uh, Wigan and Canterbury. Have you, have you done the, the, that tournament? That that's coming. That's coming up. So yeah, we, we will get to it. That that's our most requested uh, topic. The ill-fated, let's call it that, without giving any spoilers away. World Club Challenge between you know Britain and Australia. One of the first matches I went to was Wigan Canterbury at Central Park and. It was a classic match. You know, the highlights are on YouTube. I'm happy to send them to you. And it just, there was something about that game that was more special than a normal club fixture. And Wigan won, I think. A couple of Australian players got sent off, which definitely helped us. Um, I think one of them was Glenn Hughes, if you remember him. But like, it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of re- ignited a kind of passion for rugby. So if there's one good thing that came out of that, that tournament, it was my passion for rugby league. And an interest in the NRL and Super League and, and the rest of it kind of followed from that. So I, I was a rugby league nut, essentially, as a lot of people are if you if you come from Wigan or St. Helens or those areas. And, you know, as I got older and I started to write more about politics, you know, I, I was never a kind of, I've never worked in rugby league. I've never been a rugby league journalist predominantly or anything like that. I always wanted to talk about rugby league because it isn't really you know as you'll know the media in this country it doesn't focus on rugby league a lot so if you've got a bit of a profile and the opportunity to kind of write in magazines and newspapers and you can push rugby league you know you i feel like a duty to kind of do that so i've started writing about you know the working class and the decline of the working class and obviously rugby league comes into that so I'm writing at the minute for a magazine called The Critic on Rugby League, and they're really interested in as much as possible rugby league content, um, which you kindly shared. And also, you know, I've got a, a piece coming up on, on Rugby League um, in the next few weeks looking at the Batley by-election and, and, and whether that town is going to turn conservative. And this 
this kind of shift, which we know we'll probably talk about later. But so they're my rugby league credentials um, for the podcast. Okay, well, we can proceed with the interview. I just wanted to make sure you weren't some interloper. That would be wouldn't it? Rugby league fan in England, yeah. <laughs> so, you, you know, you mentioned your, you know, your main, you know, the thrust of your writing, I guess, which is, you know, looking at labour history and the working class. Yeah. Did did that connection come automatically to you? Is is this kind of a world you've you've grown up with in terms of those links between rugby league and the working class? Probably, yeah. Because I mean, it took it, you 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 got to remember when I was growing up, rugby league wasn't really as in decline as it feels now. Um, so these debates weren't really happening early two thousands. We had that kind of first kind of boom of summer Super League grand finals and it kind of felt like rugby league was going in a positive direction so I never really put the two together and obviously Labour Party in this country was in government so as I was growing up it seemed very natural for rugby league to be going forward seemed very natural for Labour to be in power it's only since the kind of financial crisis you know blinking politics and sport again that the two have just like turned and they're now both massive decline um the Labour Party you know, in this country, lost four elections in a row, which would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. Uh, rugby league in this country, falling off a cliff, you know, no one talks about it anymore, apart from outside those, you know, small heartlands. So beginning to link the two together probably only started after we had the Brexit referendum, which kind of threw these ideas of working class identity and sport and culture all back into the fore, really. So it... it the past five years, it's been a you know the the role of the working class in this country and and, and what we do you know to achieve social mobility and, and bring you know left behind people back into the national story. That that is that is a huge narrative in this country, and it just feels natural that rugby league should be a part of that story, which is where you know my writing has kind of come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, amazing period of living of history we're living through. Um, but yeah. let, let's not let's not. Uh, be too quick to get into the future or into the present because the the I guess the key reason that I really wanted to speak to you is you know I was looking at rugby league in the 80s and you know the ebbs and flows and at a certain point I was like well the, the 80s was a pretty turbulent decade for you know the north and, and the working class in the north the traditional rugby league communities uh you know highlighted by the the mining strikes and thatcherism so i wanted someone who could kind of you know explain all that and put it into context context for me so um maybe just to to get going just um you know for the benefit of me and the listeners could you just you know give me like kind of a top level explanation of of everything that happened you know uh, that that's a that's a big question the the you know in whatever words you can put it into. No, I I, un, I understand. I suppose for the listeners, probably already know this from the great work that you've done and the people you spoke to, but it's probably worth stressing again. The history of rugby league in the UK, England, is tied to heavy industry. So whether it's glass making in St. Helens or the, the coal mines in West Yorkshire, the docks in Hull, wire making in Warrington, why they're called the wire, mills in Bradford and Oldham, all the glamorous places. They, there was this really strong industrial identity, you know, coming after the Second World War. 
and probably like the 50s and 60s, they would have been integral to the British economy. Not affluent places, but definitely high, high levels of employment, high levels of class consciousness, members of trade unions, strong identities. And what you probably got to imagine, you know, this is just before Thatcherism. Most people in rugby league towns would have been coming in contact with the state at every aspect of their life. They might have been employed by the government, working in a nationalised industry, kids were educated by the state, healthcare provided by the state, water, electricity, gas nationalised by the state, by the government, housing, social housing was still more than 50% in those areas, so housing provided by the government as well. So that, that gives a really kind of like strong identity of where people would have been pre-Thatcher. But I would say where it starts to change is in the 1970s. So Margaret Thatcher becomes prime minister in 1979. But the whole decade really is we're having similar questions to what we're having now. Role of the working class, jobs that are basically coming under threat through uh, new, new, the new market, essentially. So, like, for example, in the 1970s, my parents met in Wigan working in a slipper factory. Right. It made slippers. The idea that that was going to survive into this new world of European markets, America, China, the rest of it, it, it wasn't probably going to happen. But the government was trying to kind of prop up these industries and find a way of letting them survive. And um, that's basically where the kind of the fracturing happens. And that kind of creates the conditions for Margaret Thatcher to come along and say, Britain is in decline. We need to move on from these jobs and we need to create a new, you know, political system a new economic settlement and that basically means moving away from those jobs she actually called them yesterday's jobs in a speech before she was elected you know she's like we can't prop up these jobs any longer and those are jobs that were basically in those rugby league heartlands so you know the mills in Bradford like I say the coal mines there was a clear argument being made that these jobs had to go and that's basically what happened when Margaret Thatcher was elected in in 1979 so that, that was the start of it, essentially. Interesting in, in your notes that you sent to me, you you mentioned uh, that, I've, I've got your notes here, she won on the backs of working class voters who wanted change. You can see some strong parallels with Brexit now in, in what was happening then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing, a lot of trade unionists actually voted for Margaret Thatcher knowing that she was going to do something about them because they were kind of sick of what was happening. And it wasn't, nobody also really kind of, not nobody, but people didn't really expect Margaret Thatcher to change everything. Because British politics have been so kind of like volatile, there was an expectation that, oh, she'll try and fail and Labour will come back in and we'll go back to how it was. And there was a real sense that these, you know, the miners or the steel workers would be able to kind of stop it happening. So, but there was definitely a groundswell for change. And Margaret Thatcher appealed to, most importantly, she appealed to young working class voters. I think in the first election that she won, it was one of the highest demographics was young people who were basically maybe rebellion against their older generation, the fathers and mothers who were Labour, were trade unionists, believed in this welfare state. She was kind of pitching to them. She's like, no, that's the past. The future is going to be more freedom. You know, that's the thing that she talked about more than anything. Freedom from the state, freedom from the way we're doing things, you know. There's the, the one historian point. If you, if For us, are you a fan of Faulty Towers? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a story that makes this point, which I quite like. It's like, if you want to sum up what Britain kind of felt like at the end of the 70s, go and watch the 40 Towers episode, Waldorf Salad, where the American comes to visit and everything's kind of 
going wrong with the country. You know, nothing's open after nine o'clock. You can't get a drink, can't get the right food. You know, the hotel's terrible. The motorway is not working properly. Now, that is obviously one side of the argument. And it was the argument that Thatcher was putting forward. Other people would say it was a it was a glory years in, in terms of the welfare state, in terms of social housing, great music in Britain at the time, you know, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, whatever. Like young people love the 70s still they were around at the time. So like it is a contested idea that Britain was in decline in the 70s. So I don't want everyone to think that this is just one argument here. But Thatcher won the argument essentially. She won the argument that something needed to change. And yeah, she brought a lot of working class people along with her initially, you know, into that. But what was the pitch? Like, what was she offering for, like, a kind of post-industrial world? It's a good question. There was was an analysis that actually the jobs could be replaced. So there was a sense that people kind of knew that that it was wrong what the government was trying to do and keep these jobs going. They could see, you know, inflation going up. They could see unemployment rising. They could see money being thrown into like the car industry and seeing no kind of like benefit coming out of it. But they weren't really sure about what was going to come next. And Thatcher essentially said, well, actually, it'll be hard. I think one of her speeches, she said, the medicine will be harsh, but the patient is very sick. And it was this idea that we'll go through a bit of turbulence for a few years, but then we'll come out of it. So like an area like Wigan may have new jobs and there'll be new industries that will just emerge and the market will replace them now obviously in some areas it happened and some and others it didn't but there was she was probably just better at winning the argument that's not to say that in those areas that she was popular i mean it was it was obviously the rugby league strongholds were kind of anti-thatcher but there was obviously still a big working class conservative vote that wanted to you know buy into what she was saying in that regard and then it it kind of really hit the fan with the the minor strikes in in 84 85 can you um touch on those and um how that affected perception of thatcher and how it affected the mining towns yeah 100 percent um do you want do you want the long intro yeah give give, give us the long one yes please (laughs) if we got this is for the patron people i imagine they want to go deep into this um yeah (laughs) the cult the the, the minor strike is often said was a a long time in the making so it wasn't just 1984 85 you've got to go back further than that and it kind of begins in the 1960s with the closure of a lot of coal mines streamlining it was actually the labor government that closed you know a big chunk of mines but they were seen as uneconomic pits so you would have maybe you know 20 people working there and it just wasn't economically viable to carry on with this model it was emotional you know people would go to labor conference and say what are you doing how can you possibly do this to our communities? But on the whole, the mining communities understood that they had to shut some down. By the time you get to the 70s, they've kind of had enough of that. You know, they don't want any more to be closed. And what happens is over that period of the 1960s, their pay had gone down uh, relatively as others had gone up. More people, who, if, you, if you went on strike, essentially, you're more likely to get more pay. And the miners had fallen down because they hadn't been on strike. They had been quite, um, you know, they'd worked with the government and this created a bit of a grievance. So in 1972, there's a coal strike over pay. And to the surprise of everybody, the, the miners win. They kind of bring down the government eventually. And this creates a kind of new confidence, a new militancy that the miners can actually fight for. 
the preservation of their industry, fight for higher wages. And what it actually does is it, it shakes the Conservative government into realising that if they're going to want to achieve office again, they're going to have to solve this miners' issue. So that's the kind of background. Does that make sense, that, that period? Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. background. The, the mid-70s where the miners have kind of taken on the government, they've defeated them. One thing that happens in 1974, to get even deeper, is Edward Heath calls a general election over the issue of the miners. He says to the country, we've got to stop being held to ransom by these miners. And uh, if, if, if you back me, we'll sort it. If you back them, it's industrial chaos, it's militancy, you know, the usual kind of um, argument that comes out. And to the surprise of everyone, the miners won that as well. And well, the argument and the Conservative government is defeated. Thatcher is a member of that government and she sees it and doesn't like it at all. And she doesn't really mention it again. She doesn't openly talk about we're going to take on the miners, but it's always there. Now we've looked at government papers and biographies that have come out after, and it's clear that from that moment they're, they're ready for a confrontation in, in later years. But basically you see a kind of confident miner community emerging into the 1980s. That, I suppose, begins to change when Thatcher comes to power and more people lose their jobs and there's a bit more kind of fear about what happened, the jobs for life and harsher industrial conditions, they lose a bit of that confidence. And there's a little confrontation in the early 80s between the miners and Thatcher and it looks like the miners would win it, so she backs away and then she kind of prepares gradually for the 1984-85 strike, which, you know, we can go into is um you know the set piece to kind of her government essentially so that's a bit of the background and and so let, let's get to it now so what what was the you know immediate cause of the strike the technical cause was the government announced that well the government had an ele- won an election in 1983 where it said we're going to reduce the cost of the coal industry like they'd done with other industries they were like coal is next we're going to privatise it eventually and we're going to, you know, basically reduce the size of it. And it starts with the closure of a few. One of them is called Cottonwood and the miners leader, Arthur Scargill, um, vice president of the NUM, sees this as a kind of attack on the industry. He kind of thinks that this means the end of coal mining in Britain if we let this happen. So he kind of rallies some pits behind him but not everybody. And that's where there's a kind of split straight away from the very beginning. He decides not to hold a national ballot of every single miner to support this strike. And that's kind of seen as like the big mistake that he made, the big turning point. Because if he'd done that and got the support straight away, then other trade unions could have backed it potentially. The media wouldn't have been able to call it illegitimate. Uh, The Labour Party, who was quite ambivalent towards the strike because it was worried about perception could have potentially backed it a lot more if there'd been a national ballot and most famously the nottinghamshire miners who didn't come out on strike potentially could have come out and support but straight away there's a split so in the rugby league areas there's a strike they they throw the kind of chips in with um arthur scargill and others don't so then you get a year of of basically uh, one group of miners going without work, you get confrontation. We'll probably go on later to talk about how the media, you know, talks about it. But essentially, that's what happened. The miners thought they could bounce Thatcher into a U-turn. 
she never did not for a not an inch i mean there's there's people who now claim that she she wavered and there's times when she could have u-turned but i've not really seen anything that would show that really it was never really strong enough and most importantly sadly i would argue public support was never with the miners it was always with the government i think it was 80 percent um with the miners on uh, with with the government on that that's probably a, a good place to talk about the media aspect of it all because one of the really uh interesting things from a super league perspective what we're doing with our story is the connection between rupert murdoch and swaying public support so um you you that that was a brilliant article you wrote about that so can you expand on that yeah so rupert murdoch essentially well let's 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 we go back to the beginning with murdoch as well hmm. murdoch you know arrives in britain 60s purchases the sun newspaper which used to be the Daily Herald, which was a Labour newspaper. And everyone thinks, why has he bought this newspaper? It's an absolute joke. You know, Britain was a Daily Mirror country. Most popular newspaper was the Daily Mirror. 70% of the country read a copy of the Daily Mirror, you know. So massive newspaper culture, obviously, pre-internet. So huge influence. And the Daily Mirror was, it was sensational in some regards, but it was also it had a kind of philosophy to kind of like educate, an earnest kind of philosophy to educate. And Rupert Murdoch hated that. He arrived in Britain, he was like, what I want to do is smash the Daily Mirror and make the sun the paper of the working class. And it takes him about five years, I think, to overtake the mirror, which no one thought was possible. So it's a phenomenal achievement to do that. And critics have later said that it was, you know, the kind of, have you heard of the 4S model? That, that Rupert Murdoch implemented no. skur headlines, sex scandal, sensation, something like that. Mm. And, you know, he's open about that. He's like, you know, this is what the kind of people want. And the sun becomes unbelievably popular in Britain. And it's still a Labour newspaper in the 1970s, but it kind of turns to being an anti-politics newspaper. It doesn't support the Conservatives initially when Thatcher becomes leader. But over the course of the end of the period, it starts to move towards her. And in 1979, it essentially instructs the working class readers of its newspaper to vote for Margaret Thatcher, Brighter Tomorrow, very famous editorials, about 3,000 words, which Rupert Murdoch thought was a gamble, but it paid off because, as we just previously talked about, a lot of working class people actually backed Thatcher. And nobody knew that when they wrote the editorial, but it anyway, it paid off for him. There then develops a kind of relationship between Thatcher and Murdoch, which is still kind of, no one's really got to the bottom two. There was a meeting at Chequers, I can't remember if I put it in the notes, between Thatcher and Murdoch. No one knows what was said, so I don't want to libel you with a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Essentially, it was to discuss the purchase of the Times newspaper, and it would have been overturned because it would have been seen if, if he'd bought the Times newspaper as having a kind of monopoly on too much news. The Sun and the News of the World and the Times would have been too much. It wouldn't have happened. Somehow Thatcher gets it bypassed the commission. Murdoch gets the Times. Who knows if there was a deal, but essentially for the rest of the decade, he's, the Sun and the Times are the most ardent supporters of Thatcherism. And when it comes to the miners' strike, they are the kind of, I would call it propaganda machine, but that would probably be a little bit... Um, you know, other, some others would say different, but essentially day after day after day after day, you get the kind of scandalous stories, 
happening that are totally irrelevant to the cause you know so it'd be like miners wives who has an affair it's you know it's all this kind of stuff and it's kind of creating a another you know they they, they openly call them the enemy within the miners are on strike these are the people that are going to bring britain to its knees if we let them win arthur scargill who yes was a militant and probably was the worst person to be leading the miners in terms of like a pr you know person because very deeply unpopular person outside of mining communities you know was obviously a target for the murdoch press and they yeah the the the, the, the murdoch press at the time was was so influential in kind of narrating that strike, you know, most popular newspaper in Britain. And there's a lot of controversy over the way it reported Orgreave, which was a famous kind of battle between miners and police and Nolan still to this day knows what really happened there. Um, and also there was a time when the Sun newspaper wanted to kind of mock Arthur Scargill up as a Hitler figure and the print unions had to pull the uh the, the front page because they weren't happy with it so you've got all this going on at the time and obviously you know to readers of the sun newspaper this was you know the gospel truth of what was happening others see it quite differently um but it was so important in kind of supporting the government there would have been no way they could have done it if the press had been on the other side then funnily enough when we we're talking about that previous strike in the 70s the sun had actually supported the miners they'd said we back the miners against the government and in a 10-year period it just flips on its head and it yeah it would have played a vital role in that it's it was really striking to me i've just in you know in preparing uh our super league chapter i read the the merging on the ridiculous uh book that was put together by fans in the immediate aftermath of the signing with super league and it's it's really it's really visceral how how much the mining strikes are evoked and and how much Murdoch in particular is talked about for his role back then. And the, the famous line is, you know, they took away our jobs, now they're taking our leisure. So, I mean, I, I think if they were planning to merge all these traditional teams, it would have caused an uproar anyway. But it, it seems like that that connection just made it like doubly painful. Do you think that's fair to say? I certainly think so in areas like... Featherstone, Castleford, who were going to, they were going to be the ones that were going to merge, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but I would actually say in an area like Wigan or Warrington, I'm not sure how much there was an antipathy towards Murdoch. I mean, you've probably got to think about as well, a lot of rugby league supporters do read the Sun newspaper. So it's not like there would have been a natural hatred towards Rupert Murdoch. There certainly was people like Ian Clayton who were like a big kind of like opponent of it. Um, certainly would have been anti-Murdoch. And if you read a lot of the press at the time, it does focus on the Murdoch aspect of it. But if you think about how, you know, Sky Sports has tipped a lot of money into Super League through Murdoch's empire, people don't boycott Sky Sports in the Super League. They never would. There's never been a kind of discussion now in Liverpool because of what happened at Hillsborough and the way that the Murdoch press reported that, there is a, a still an active boycott of the Sun newspaper that will never be broken. They'll be handed down from generation to generation. I don't know Featherstone well enough to say if that is the case there, so I may be speaking out of turn. But certainly from my side of things on the northwest, there's no real kind of like antipathy towards Murdoch. It might have been different back then, but... Um, yeah, I think it was that was more in the kind of like real coal communities, definitely in places like Featherstone and Castleford, yeah. Well, yeah, it makes sense because that's where 
like a lot of this stuff was written and, and a lot of those protests were, were going on. But but that probably uh, leads us to the contrasting fortunes of northern towns in, in the aftermath of yeah. the, the mining strike, which uh, it, it's fair to say it was, you know, a decisive loss to the miners and was to reshape, you know, a, a lot of towns up there. Is that a fair characterization oh. of what happened? Look, we, we're still living in the shadow of it, like as a country. Like the whole the whole Brexit debate was kind of framed about it's kind of the Le- Labour Party anyway. Essentially, is kind of re is refighting the miners' strike away. Like they now kind of frame everything as post Thatcher. Actually, I can send it to you. I wrote an article about this recently about the problem that Labour have with this mythology that they view everything through the miners' strike, which works in certain places you know like works in the northwest and other places where the the memory is still fresh and you know it still hurts but in the rest of the country kind of forgot about it a long time ago but it still seems like kind of like potent symbol of old britain and new britain and anyone who wants to succeed and say we want to move forward they kind of frame it through the minor strike even the brexit vote was kind of seen well do you remember when these towns used to have good industries and it's conservative people saying it, even though it was their party that actually created these conditions. You know, like I say, Batley, for example, and, and places like that, areas that were hit hard by Thatcherism now moving towards a conservative party because essentially the conservatives are saying things went wrong 40 years ago. It's kind of a weird political place to be in. But you're right, it still hangs over those communities and a lot of them didn't regenerate. You know, like it's it's, it's very it's very divided again, like. A place like Warrington did quite well afterwards, you know, new industries, new tech industries is near Liverpool and Manchester. So he's always going to be doing OK. Same like Wigan, places like that. But then an area like, say, Featherstone, Workington, um, you know, other places like that, a bit more kind of like detached from the big cities. They've struggled and that and they were much part that that industry was probably much more part of their identity. And it, it did change a lot after the miners' strike. Yeah. Well, let's use, you know, Wigan as a case study then. So what was like Wigan's path to overcoming everything that happened and, and prospering? There was, the, when when you came out of the kind of Thatcher period, a lot of the kind of jobs in those towns moved away from heavy industry and into kind of like public sector. When the Labour kind of, gov- when the Labour government came in in 1997, there was a real push to kind of create jobs in these towns a lot of them were in the public sector, a lot of them like in social services, a lot of in the service industry. New businesses did come in, but a lot of the jobs are still low wage, insecure, zero hour. So you, you still have relatively high unemployment and there's still unemployment in those areas more than the national average. But for a long period, it appeared to be, you know, turning around. You know, Wigan would be a good example of a place that did okay afterwards compared to other places but it certainly wasn't affluent um now the cracks are starting to appear because after the the um austerity you know i don't know how much you know about the austerity that was impacted on britain after the financial crisis it took away a lot of the money from the social services and when you cut those you cut the jobs as well so that those places were going to be harder hit than london and other places manchester for example um in in the aftermath of that so you kind of get the twin you get the 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 hit of thatcherism and then the the revitalization after that and then you get the hit of austerity and now it's it's hard across those northwest areas for them to kind of regenerate again 
post that's a lot of it kind of that's probably would explain a lot of the Brexit vote. People in those towns believing that something has to improve and that leaving the European Union can do that. That's what the leaders of the uh, Leave campaign campaign said would happen. It's what Boris Johnson says he will do. He's going to level up a town like Lee, which is really far behind everywhere else. The proof of the pudding is going to be in five years' time if whether Lee is um, what he what he says it's going to be. Are, are you seeing any like signs one way or the other at this point? Not really, not really. Like the kind of it seems a lot of rhetoric at the minute. Um, the levelling up agenda, which Boris Johnson's talking about, is about kind of big infrastructure projects. They're trying to sort out the railways to the north, which is something that has needed to be done for a long time and successive governments haven't solved it. For example, there's a kind of belief if you can sort out travel between Manchester, Liverpool, Wigan areas, people, instead of moving to Manchester, will live in these smaller towns. And there is absolutely been a demographic shift, which probably fits into the kind of decline of rugby league in in those towns in that a lot of the young people who go to university people like myself leave the towns they're from they go to the cities to work and the people that are left in these rugby league towns are older um it's dwindling in terms of you know the amount of people that are there which means that actually the demographic of a rugby league town is older than it would have been 20 years ago and this is like a major problem now the government are kind of saying we want young people to actually stay in Lee and Wigan and St Helens and Widnes rather than leave, which again is the complete opposite of what was said in the 1980s. In the 1980s, Norman Tebbit made a speech, a Conservative minister, where it was said, get on your bike and go and find work. Very famous speech. And he's essentially saying, you people who live in these areas that are not going to revive themselves, get yourself to London, get yourself to Manchester, get yourself wherever and find a job. And now the complete opposite has happened. And we're the government are essentially saying we will bring the jobs to you because they think there's votes in place and locality. I, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but there's basically been a kind of like revival of place and the idea of being proud of your community, which I think is a good thing. But it's just that it's kind of like, will it will they actually bring the jobs back? I'd love for the jobs to come back to those towns, but whether they will or not, there's no evidence to suggest it will just yet. Mm. Well, well, that's probably set up the the broader, um, you know, socio-political, economic climate. So let's, you know, put a, a rugby league spin on it. And I'm really interested in in the relationship between what was happening uh, under Thatcher and how rugby league progressed in the, in the 1980s. And um, what's your assessment of how Thatcherism impacted rugby league throughout that decade? It's a really good question, and it's one that people don't really ask. I mean, as in when we talk about sport, we just think of it as a sport. We often don't think about this kind of social, economic, cultural things that happen outside of it. It's why your podcast is great and why people like Tony Collins is great and people like that who write about these things, and that's what I'm trying to do when I write. Um, there was obviously an immediate impact of that early recession. So you're talking about three million unemployed. You're talking about massive unemployment in places like Wigan, St. Helens, the rest of it. I think 1983, there was a 11% drop in attendances, which comed, comes after the great 1982 Invincibles, which was seen as a kind of now, 
historic turning point where everyone kind of like changed the way they thought about rugby league. But after that tour, you get a massive drop in club attendances because people just don't have the money. Um, and if you, I don't know if you've got any of the Rothmans rugby league books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go and have a look at 1982-83 and it just has a list of the clubs that are struggling. And I think off the top of my head, it was like Dewsbury, Huddersfield, Rochdale, Workington, Whitehaven, Carlisle. And obviously you get Wigan relegated to the second division, which is like, it kind of adds into that decline theory of Britain. You know, I've written about that, that this, you know, Victorian institution relegated, will it come back? A lot of people don't think it will. So there's there's all that happening. But then at the same time, you do have pockets of revival in the English game. Hull are doing okay. Then obviously, which we might want to get into, you get the arrival of Maurice Lindsay at Wigan, which I think kind of changes the whole landscape of, of that decade, um, just by bringing a kind of new attitude towards the way that a sports team should be run. So if, if we want to go into Wigan, Wigan obviously declined in the 1970s as a club quite slowly. It wasn't like a they were doing OK, lost a few players, then they got relegated. It was just a slow drift into mediocrity over 10 years. Um, players disappear, young people go and play elsewhere, fans drop off. And this was like the, the glamour club of the sport. Come relegated in the second division, Maurice Lindsay comes in. The first thing that he has to do is stump up £100,000 with another director to save the club from bankruptcy. If he hadn't done that, Wigan Athletic might have bought Central Park, kicked Wigan out. Wigan might be... Wigan could have been like Swinton or Batley now if if if, if, if that hadn't happened. But in, in turn, Lindsay, who's naturally... He's, I don't know how much you know about Lindsay if you've done an episode on him, bits of him. A natural gambler. So he was a, he was a bookmaker. So he would be taking bets on courses at horse horse racing, as well as being a director of Wigan. And he just takes punts on you know Wigan and players. And he decides you know like a big one that he signed is Henderson Gill, who I'm sure you're aware of. Great. Oh yeah. Takes a punt on Henderson Gill when nobody else is interested in him, and he's like, I think I found my Billy Boston. And it could have backfired, and he could have been terrible, and Wigan could have got relegated. But he just. He has a gambler's instinct, and it's it's kind of what people are doing in the 1980s. They're kind of doing it for themselves. They're trying to breaking away from the old way of doing things. And you know, Wigan turns professional. He takes a punt on Ellery Hanley when everyone else says you can't play a play a hundred thousand pound a year. The fans won't wear it, and he's like, the fans will wear it. And you know, he turns a wing club around. It becomes a, you know as dominant as they were. And that kind of he brings the kind of like business techniques, the gambler's instinct. Some would call it Thatcherism to a rugby club. Um, but at the same time, that isn't the story for everyone. And the problem with Maurice Lindsay is that he expected everyone to be like Wigan. But, you know, Featherstone were never going to be like Wigan. Batley were never going to be like Wigan. Huddersfield were never going to be able to do it. He would say, well, why not? But there's obviously other economic factors happening. So I think that's where you, you get a better understanding of where Maurice Lindsay's coming from when the whole, you know, Super League thing kicks off, uh, you know, 10 years later. Well, I'm actually really interested in that question of of why not, because it seems that there's a few things going on at the same time. So you've got this character, Morris Lindsay, you know, at, in your notes, you've said, you know, embrace Thatcherism um, yeah. and, you know, had that business now. You also had Wigan as this, 
you know, rugby league town of all rugby league towns and, you know, maybe had more support than, than other towns would have in normal circumstances. Yeah. And then a third thing is the, the kind of depression going on through throughout many rugby league towns. So, I don't know, to me it seems like all of those things were kind of set up for Wigan. And, um, you know, how do you square that? Well, if you think, if you go look at the rugby league structure as it was in the early 80s, it was more collectivised. So gate money was shared out a bit more equally. Not sure the specifics, but it was a lot more. One of the things that Maurice Lindsay wanted to change was to get the money into Wigan and stop it going to clubs like Kent and Victor. I know you talked about Kent in one of your previous podcasts, but it's like the RFL was throwing the money down the drain that they were getting in 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 their eyes. And the, the, you know, there's this th- there's this thing in business in the 1980s called streamlining, which essentially meant stripping it away with the kind of fat. And that's what Lindsay talked about all the time. He's like, let's get rid of this team, this team, this team, this team, and focus on these teams here. So it would have been Halifax and. Wigan and St Helens and Widnes and you know Bradford potentially let's pool our resources here and cut away and essentially that is kind of what's happened over time now like the, there is a, a massive imbalance between the top and the bottom whereas back then there was a lot of cup competition so Wigan would have had to play Dewsbury in a Challenge Cup and bring the fans there and there was a Lancashire Cup a Yorkshire Cup a John Play Special Trophy you know all these mad cups which Morris Lindsay argued devalued from the main product which was the Challenge Cup and the league I think one year Wigan basically had built this array of stars just before they got big and and started dominating and they were top of the league in the Challenge Cup semi-final and they had to play all these cup tournaments like John Player Special, Lancashire Cup and Fixture Pile Up and they ended up losing the league, they ended up losing the Challenge Cup. And Maurice Lindsay was like, this just cannot carry on like this. Um, but for everybody else, those cup competitions were really important. It also meant that there was a kind of link between all the clubs. Wigan would have to go and play Kent and Victor or Fulham or whatever, like, you know, if, if they were drawing a Challenge Cup. So there was there was... There was a move to try and break that up and kind of create a, a smaller division. And the first Super League was talked about in 1986. I don't know how much you know about that, but that was the first time that the top clubs was like, let's break away. It didn't work out because they kind of got what they wanted. But um, in answer to your question, I think that the, the, the economic changes, Morris Lindsay sensed that you could only do it with a small amount of teams. And like what Thatcher had done with industry, you could like a plan for the coal mines, for example, strip it down, just have the most profitable pits, and we'll, you know, everything will be okay. You, you're not, you, you're not factoring in history and culture and all the passions that that would kind of like evoke if you tried to do it. So there was an opportunity there, though, you could probably say, because, you know, if we want to talk about rugby league in a more broader sense in the 1980s, there was a lot of optimism that it could become the sport of the country um it's the first sport to really go professional before football um or or at least professionalized standards people like Ellery Hanley and Sean Edwards they don't get enough credit for the fact that they are absolute pioneers in terms of like British athletes though I mean when Sean Edwards went to rugby union in you know 2000s he was saying the way they were training we were doing this in the 1980s it's like we were so far ahead of our time in what we were doing someone like Ellery you know, is 
phenomenally ahead of his time. Like, and it, that proved, by the way, that when he went to Australia and absolutely proved how good he was at, at Balmain. You know, he used to train in a weighted vest and all this stuff so that he was more powerful than anyone else. And it's like the idea that a rugby league player would do this, um, you know, in the 1970s, it was just insane. But so, 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 the, so there's, a, there's a market there, people believe at the time, that we can sell these people. And then you get the, I don't know if you want to talk about the international game, but then the international game booms in this country. We decide to start taking games away from, so you look at 1982, the first game is at Hall KR, I think. You know, it looks kind of all right, not much of a spectacle. Four years later, they take it to Old Trafford and it's 50,000 people and everyone's got sponsors and the BBC are covering it with a two-hour programme beforehand. You know, Steve Ryder is a presenter over here. They take the grandstand to the game, the first time it's been done. So there's like these opportunities and people think the international game and Wigan could be the way forward. And what they want to do is, you know, do that everywhere. But like, you know, that's a very hard thing to do. And it, it obviously it never really caught on. And but internationally it grew. You know, we had the 1990-92-94, it got bigger, but we lost something of the club game at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um which I think, yeah, does that set it up? Uh, kind yeah, of what, yeah. what the what the one what the Lindsay's of this world wanted to achieve. So for example, when the Lindsay as the businessman we're talking about the first World Club challenge that is had between Wigan and Manly, Lindsay does that off his own back. You know, the RFL are not involved. And he does it because he's had the Australians uh, a few months before and they've made so much money. I think 30,000 people have turned up to watch Wigan Australia. And he's like, how can we get more of these 30,000 fixtures? There's appetite there, but they're not going to come and watch Wigan and Barrow next week. We need more of these event matches. And he just decides to do it. And, you know, the rest is history when it comes to the kind of World Club Challenge, but that was just, you know, the inventiveness and the ambition and the, the decision to kind of push it forward, which you need an individual to do, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's hard to see him and Wigan kind of going it alone or with, with just, a, you know, a few other clubs there. You can't really see Castleford, you know, that's being able to, to go along this same path. Um, and that's the thing that Maurice Flindsay would never admit to they cherry-picked the best players from other clubs as well. So, like, you know, like you've talked about, a fire Edwards. I mean, they had a great youth system, but they were also taking the best talent from Australia as well, you know. Like, it, the idea that everyone could have done that, it, I mean, it, it, it's why you ended up with a salary cap. It's why Wigan nearly ended up going bankrupt, because the model that they were basing it on was dependent on success. And when everyone caught up, you know, Wigan, Wigan couldn't rely on that money all the time anymore. So there's def- certainly flaws in what he was trying to achieve. But I think as a just kind of... The, the thing that I like about Maurice Lindsay, and, you know, he's got all his detractors, and people hate me for saying this, but I just think the the, 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 the kind of, like, originality of it. Rugby League, just... Rugby League for the past decade in this country, maybe it's the same in the NRL, it just looks exactly the same. It's the same teams, the same players, same styles, and they just the ethos of it just looks the same. But if you look at this game from 1982, Invincible Tour in the UK, to 1990, just the, the, the speed of change, the players, the attitudes, the way it looks, it's just changing rapidly. And I think it's obviously hard to do, and it's a problem with the culture generally. It's, it's, people have said this about the, the time we live, that music's not changing as fast and politics is not changing as fast. And, you know, we're kind of stagnating. But I think rugby league in particular has struggled 
over the past decade to kind of find those new ways of attracting people into it and new teams and new markets and the 1980s that certainly wasn't the case how much of an influence do you think these kind of broader social issues have on rugby league today in terms of where it stands in this country yeah i think look it's always going to struggle because of just class snobbery like whether you like it or not, and rugby league would probably never admit it, but the newspapers are not interested in it, not because of the product, but because they just think that rugby league is that sport played by Northerners. And, you know, there was a, there was a, there was a, if you actually want to take it back to 1990, there was a report done by a marketing company and it was published in a magazine of open rugby. And they talked to some Southern people about their perceptions of rugby league. And one of the things that came out of it, it was like, oh, we're surprised that they're cheering the black players because we thought the North was racist. So, like, they, they just, you know, the, that kind of attitude existed then. It certainly exists now in the wake of Brexit. There's a real, particularly, you know, I live in London, there's a real kind of, like, misunderstanding of what the North is and who the people are and what they're about. And they, they, they kind of deflect the Brexit vote as meaning that, yes, they're racist, yes, they're stupid. A certain type of person, anyway. Not everybody. But if you're that way inclined, you've got no time for these people. And rugby league is the sport of these Brexit places. There's a certain type of person that does not like that. So rugby league's going to find it hard to kind of remarket itself unless it just wants to pitch itself to, you know, the, the audience that it's already got. And the problem with that is... It's trying to do two things at the same time. We had a bit of a controversy in this country over Black Lives Matter when players took the knee when they didn't take the knee. Certain supporters don't want it involved. We're pitching to that audience, but we're also trying to pitch to a more liberal audience that aren't interested in us either. So there's just so much going on at the minute in terms of identity that the sport doesn't really know where it is. An ideal world would be you have your historic clubs and you can maximize them and you can also have your new tr new clubs that are bringing a different market audience to it at the minute we kind of haven't really got either we're kind of losing traditional supporters for lots of reasons that we've kind of discussed but we're also not gaining any new supporters in cities toronto was thought as a whole but that was you know the model it was based on was never really going to achieve any success really you know, we frame ourselves as a rebellious sport, but we can't get any rebellious sponsors on. You know, why isn't Brewdog interested in sponsoring rugby league if we're such a rebellious sport? They're a rebellious, rebellious brewing company, or they pitch themselves as that. But they just look at it and go, no, like the, the, the audience isn't there. So we end up being sponsored by, you know, Heinz Big Soup or Mushy Peas. and Mushy Peas. I was going to mention the Mushy Peas. <laughs> mushy Peas. And people, like, we laugh at that and take the piss out of it. And, like, you know, it's like, and, and, and if we're doing it, the Southerners who catch it on TV do it. And I know they do it because I've seen them do it. I've been in rooms with people who just, you know, St. Talons are sponsored by cash converters. To a Southerner, that is hilarious. The, the, the best team in this country is sponsored by cash converters. And it's, it's, it's snobbery. You know, cash converters, for people who aren't aware, is like a place where you go and sell your gold and buy it back at a pond. Yeah, so, no, the, the, the Western Reds were sponsored by cash converters in 1995, so we're, <laughs> we're not too good for cash converters. Well, well, I have no problem with cash converters, but I mean, it's like you've got to take the money where you get it, and I don't want to, I don't want to, don't want to ruin the same time. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like 
rugby union, it's BMW, it's it's the kind of big financial institutions, it's Land Rover, it's O2. Um, and it's hard to, you know, a big problem that rugby league's got with perception now is we've just gone all in with the betting industry, you know, and like, you know, I used to work for the betting industry, so I know the way it works and it's not, not critical of people who have a bet or that, the way that that works. But the idea is a sport, the only sponsor we can get now is Betfred, Coral, Labrooks, all the rest of it. And in the same places, we've got massive, massive gambling problems. Like the government is basically trying to work out why, the, well, they should be able to work it out quite easily, but why there's massive gambling problems in places like Wigan, St. Helens, Wakefield, wherever. And there's more betting shops in those places than there is in anywhere else in the country. You know, they've done studies into it. Where it's like the proportion of betting shops in low-income areas is so much higher. And we as a sport have basically said, yeah, we're going to encourage that way more because every team is going to be sponsored by a betting company. The whole Challenge Cup is going to be sponsored by a betting company. The Super League is sponsored by a betting company. And you know, what, what can we do, though? What can, we can't come out of it and turn it down because when we did that, and I think you discussed it before, we gave away our sponsorship for free and everyone derided that. So we're, we're, identity-wise, we're in a really, really difficult position right now. And there's no one really, I think, within the game that is willing to kind of define what we are as a sport and take people along with it. And, and if that means like moving one direction and not the other, so be it. But we, you, there's a clear lack of vision, I suppose, is, is, is what we're missing. Well, the funny thing is, in all, all the research I've been doing over the last few weeks, it seems like we could have been having this exact conversation at any point in the last 40 years. And it seems that there's always this tension between we need to expand and know we're a northern sport. And it, it just seems as as soon as it starts not working in one direction, there's a complete reversal, of course, the other way. And there's just hasn't been a, a, a plan, it seems, for, you know, at any point in the last 40 years. Well, the only plan we ever had was Super League, right? So that was that was the only time when Someone said, we're going to merge these clubs, we're going to have that there, and, you know, and it lasted, what, two weeks? And then it, yeah. it, all, it all fell apart. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, there is an alternative issue where we went down that route and we just, it was, you know, Featherton and Cash, you merge or you die. And we, we just see what happened with that. There's got to be a way of, there's got to be a model where you can have your heritage teams that are playing in one competition and a, a, a big, bold national Super League. That has got to be the kind of aim if the support is to survive, really, I think. I think it can carry on as it's going now and kind of slowly get behind the NRL, lose its international game totally and just become essentially a really strong sport in those areas that it's played now. And that would be good for the people that live there. It'd be good for potentially Sky Sports. We wouldn't get as much money. We would probably wouldn't get as many Australian players staff will be going part-time i mean it's happening anyway but it's you know you can see that's the way it's going to go if nothing changes but the alternative is that we love this sport we think it's the best sport in the country we think that we can take it to new places and people like it over time we're not yet willing to say we've had our day it's in decline let's just stick with what we've got we want more and that's why there's a kind of like you know great people writing about the game magazines like 4020 and 
great journalists like people like John Davidson who, who wrote a really great piece um, yesterday about the state of the game, why we're not really willing yet just to kind of give up. Um, and if, if, there's, if someone can come up with a plan that we could all kind of get around, I think you'd notice quite quickly how much support there would be for it. Whether it was a Villandis type figure, it would have to be someone who could kind of like shock the sport into change and do it. But you would need the clubs to kind of give them that power. You know, I don't know how much you know about this guy, Robert Elston, who came into the sport from Everton a couple of years ago. He tried to do that, failed miserably. He's gone now. So it's like you say, the debates that we're having, we've been having, you know, for the past 40 years. There actually does seem to be more, even more of a retraction. So like there was ideas for Kent and Victor Fulham places in the past. We're not even talking about those places anymore. I think a lot of people in the game have given up hope of becoming a national sport because of demographic change and all this kind of stuff. So there does need to be a rekindling of 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 of, of the vision, I think. Because it also seems that, you know, you mentioned the decline of, of these northern towns. And it, to me, it's it's exactly what happens with the bush here in Australia, where like yeah. populations are, you know, dropping rapidly and that's having a market effect on rugby league with you know we've heard of teams not being able to field you know first grade teams for years now you're seeing whole competitions going under um so it just seems that at a base level there aren't enough of the traditional fans to sustain it and you know it's got to go in the other direction at some point do you think do you think that there would be an appetite in Australia to kind of help us out? And the, the way that you would help us out would be the international game. Because like I say, this boom in the eighties, it only really happens because of the international game. You know, like so you have successive ashes series, you know, eighty two, eighty six, ninety, ninety four, building up this kind of like battle between these two nations. Look, obviously when England play Australia in the cricket over here absolutely massive people get behind it they're interested for the rest of the time you know unless England are playing a major international team no one's interested in cricket no one will follow cricket but the international game is a route forward rugby league does not do anywhere near enough international games to build up that kind of interest so like England are playing a a kind of exiles team I don't know if you know about this next Friday yeah England v the Aussies who play in Super League how could I possibly sell that to a rugby union supporting friend as, a, as an interesting thing to get behind your country and want to? You can't possibly do that. Like, it's the, you know, when you've got like cricket and rugby union with these big major international tournaments, rugby league in, internationally it looks so small in comparison. A way to improve that would would be getting Australia over here a lot more. But it seems to be you're more interested in, you know, and rightly developing the Pacific nations because. That's also a hotbed. So the, the the real danger is that actually England just falls away completely. And we have a World Cup coming up in a few months' time. And I think England's opening game is against Tonga or Samoa. Wouldn't surprise me if England lost it. And it's like, you know, and, and it, it, we're, we're in that kind of position now where it's like there are a lot of better international nations than us. So do you think there, there would ever be a chance of Australia kind of helping us out? I mean, history says no. Like the, the it, it's. I mean, there's there's a few things going on at once. You know, firstly, the rise of state of origin, 
yeah. you know, by the end of the 80s, that had become the pinnacle of representative representative football yeah, uh, yeah. in the eyes of many Australians. And yeah. you're right, now we are seeing an international resurgence, but it is almost entirely in the Southern Hemisphere. And, uh, uh, yeah, like, I mean, historically, we haven't really been interest, interested in international football for the better part of 40 years. Australia has to wear a lot of that blame. I think part of it is that England just weren't coming to the party, yeah. you know, and the state of origin was born out of that lack of top opposition. And then, you know, that eight, late 80s, early 90s period, there was a buzz again, but, you know, it, it fell away. And then Super League happened here and interest in the game fell away here as well. And it just became a mess. And then it started to come back, but now the model seems to be, well, we'll just take your best players. They can come and play over here. So we're really excited about your best players, but you know, actually getting excited about test matches, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm of the view that we absolutely need to do more, um, but whether that will happen, I just, I, I don't know. I'm not too optimistic about it. It's whether the NRL can live without Super League as a professional entity. Because without... I mean, this podcast may sound like I'm being really negative about Rugby League, and I suppose I have been. But, I mean, it's like... I think we are on the verge of sliding towards a very different type of Rugby League in this country because our broadcast deal has, like, almost been halved. And it's like... And it isn't going to get any better anytime soon. Like, I don't think people at the Rugby League realise, like, how much it's kind of fallen off a cliff. And they're obviously doing, like, really great things to try and get people in. And all the demographic changes that we talk about are obviously affecting the clubs. But there's no way that the NRL is going to be on a par with Super League anytime soon. But it, it may get to a position where, you know, just light and day and all the best players continue to go that way. Can the NRL afford to live without Super League? They might think they can. But I think it's... I've heard Phil Gould talk about, you know, needing to save the English game and, you know, making it maybe NRL 2.0. I do think something radical has to happen to kind of change the way that rugby league is seen in this country. And if that's aligning it with like a really strong Australian brand and getting sponsors on board that way, I think that they've got to think big. I think they've got to think yeah. big. Yeah, I, I, you know, it was, it was even talked about the NRL, you know, taking over the Super League and, and running it. And I, I think there's some issues there. Like, I don't I don't know if the NRL is competent enough to, to run two competitions, but I definitely think, like, more support, way more support is needed. And just, um, I don't know, just, like, simple things. I, I'm, you know, big on the history, so I know this isn't the most pressing issue to the game in England, but... The um, the museum that was at the George Hotel for a while, uh, and that closed, and then the George Hotel was getting sold. It's like, just buy the George Hotel NRL and, you yeah. know, save that museum. Just, uh, that that's not a big issue, but, you know. I think we feel, as, as English, because NRL is massive in this country now, maybe that's part of the, the, the fall of Super League as well, has been the way that we've been able to access NRL so cheaply. So now you can buy a pass for... You know NRL, um, not 360. Uh, it's and the NRL. Watch NRL. It's called. It's about 150 quid for a year. You get every single game, 
and you know, loads of people I know have it. Loads of people in Wigan. You go around, walk around Wigan nights, NRL, Australian jerseys. You probably as like to see an Australian jersey as a Wigan shirt on a young person anyway, on a young kind of like professional in the twenties. NRL is cool. Super League is like the opposite of cool. And you know, maybe there's a kind of like you know romanticism for a, you know far place. You know, lots of Wiganers I know moved to Australia. You know, I lived in Australia for a bit. A lot of kind of like English people have done it. But there's got to be a way of kind of like tapping into that for the Super League as well. You know, like linking up with this brand that people like and bringing it over here. We tried to do it, aligning the seasons a little bit, copying some of your rules. But I think there's got to be more of a kind of like formal relationship between the two. And yeah, smarter marketing people than me would be able to probably figure it out. But it obviously all costs money and it it's just, just really just doesn't have it. It just doesn't in this country to do anything like that. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's 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 been, you know, not only is it just really frustrating, it's also just, I don't think it makes good business sense for the NRL to just be this, like, island that sees it, itself as rugby league in all forms and not understand the responsibility it has to the game as a whole. Um but yeah, I'm I'm just not optimistic of that changing because I haven't seen any evidence from the NRL of having any, any interest in that. You also have a lot of your own problems, I suppose, with the club. Yeah. You didn't, you know, there's a certain pie and you know expansion and all the rest of it. And like, are they really thinking about what's going on in England? Because I think a lot of people who, you know, follow the NRL from England feel like you don't really care about us. Like, so you watch NRL 360, for example. And the pundits will be talking about Super League with no knowledge of what's going on. So they'll be saying things like, yep. Albert Kelly's tearing it up over there. It's like, have you watched him play over here? Like, literally, he's one of the worst players over here. Like, not every Australian that comes over yeah, here does yeah. well. But there's like a belief that, like, you know, once they leave Australia, they're kind of retiring to England. I mean, you've even heard it said before, Gareth Widdett retired. It's like, well, no, he kind of went to Warrington. And now he's coming yeah, back. Yeah. Like, so there's a good... You know, we'd like that to change, just a little bit more respect, I suppose. But it comes from beating you. You know, if we have a World Cup in, in England, the one way to save rugby league in this country would be to win the World Cup. And, um, you know, all that is is winning, what, five games? It can be yeah. done. It hasn't been done before. Yeah. <laughs> but England, you know, we've got a coach and who's passionate about England, so maybe it'll happen this time. Yeah, well... Uh, I actually, I was at a trivia night a couple of weeks ago and the question was, who are the current holders of the Rugby League World Cup? And I, I said, Australia, of course, and it was marked wrong. And the, and the quiz master said, it's England and had to challenge him on that one because I'm like, no, that, he, he said, oh, I, what, I, what I was looking at mustn't have been the most current one. And I'm like, no, it was 50 years out of date. But <laughs> Respect to that man, whoever, whoever said that. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe he knows something we don't, and and maybe this year is the year. But th this has been very illuminating for me, Anthony. I've I've, I've learnt a lot over this chat, so um, I want to uh, really thank you uh, for joining me for this. It's no, it's no. yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you you've got a cult following over here, you know, Rugby League Digest. Yeah, it's, I said cult following. So yeah, yeah. Rugby League is a very cult sport in this country. So <laughs> your podcast as well. But no, I get a lot of people send it to me, um, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm already onto it. I think because also the Super League war, it's hard to find out about stuff like that over here. You know, the 
What was the book that was written about the Super League War? The bit, the main one in Australia. Is that what? Yeah, my, you can't get a yeah, copy. Of it. I yeah. remember going to the British Library, which claims to have every book ever written, trying to get that book, and they're like, "Oh no, we've never heard of it." I'm like, Jesus. So your podcast has kind of like helped us out, and I love oh. the fact that you just focus on the English game as well, like we talked about. Like, you know, we feel a bit neglected. The fact that you're taking, you know, a bit of interest and, and going really deep into, like, you know, the 80s. Yeah, it's really good. So I'm, well, it's, I'm, it's, it's important to us. Uh, and you couldn't tell the story without covering the English side. Yeah. And it, it's, and, you know, this is this is kind of our second go round yeah, on yeah. the English side. But the first one, it was it was looking at the takeover without any, like, real... Um, any real research into how it was in England. So yeah, yeah. this was really important for us to to correct that. And you know, it's it's so funny, like because you know most most people in Australia have some you know British and or Irish heritage. Obviously, as two rugby league countries and a lot of shared culture, I, I kind of felt like you know, oh yeah, I I know I know England. I know English people. I know English rugby league. Yeah, yeah. And it's only when you start looking at it in depth, you're just like, wow, this this culture is like entirely foreign to me. And and what I thought I knew was just so surface level. So it's it's been a um, really rewarding part of the research for me. And you also start to see like the parallels between the countries as well. Oh, absolutely, so, yeah. I think that's why a lot of like English people go well out there like the nrl players or there's kind of like respect for that culture we're very similar and um yeah particularly just sport you know working class backgrounds and also just like we talked about the murdoch culture and politics and decline and you know mining industries and all this kind of thing once you start to get into it it's really interesting to compare the two mostly you've got the better weather Uh, (laughs) of heat wave until today and now, oh, really? just England are about to play Scotland in the Euros, which is meant to be like the big thing. Yeah, yeah, today. yeah. And then, um, yeah, it's gone now. So, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, anyone who's enjoyed this chat, uh, please go check out Tides of History. Just such a, a great resource for me. So, um, yeah. So please check that out. Uh, and Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, pleasure. Hopefully, chat again soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.